Kara Fitzpatrick, welcome to Wonky Folk. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great. And you're the last uh, you're the last guest. Jed has been off. He is uh, hiking in Spain and he's been gone for a bit. And you're going to be the last guest before his uh, triumphant return. And I'm sure he'll be in a, in a fantastic mood after that. <laughs> Appreciate you taking the time. Hey, I always start like uh, you're in uh, New York. I know you live with your family, but just give give us a little bit of the background. Like where did where did you grow up? Uh, and how, how did you how did you get into education? Oh, um, I grew up in Washington State, but in Eastern Washington, people always think Seattle. Uh, yeah. Eastern Washington is more like Idaho, not at all like Seattle. Very conservative, uh, sort of rural farming a lot. Um, and my mom is a public school teacher, uh, retired now, and my sister is uh, also a teacher in the same district where we grew up, and so. I ended up writing about education, but had no interest in being a teacher. So I guess that's kind of how I got into it. Cool. What was school like for you? Like, was it, did you, I mean, if your mom was a teacher, your sister was at a place you found gratification, validation, or was school frustrating and hard? Like, what was, what was your relationship with, with school? I don't think anyone has ever asked me that. Um, I had a, a fine relationship with school. Um, the area that we were in, like I said, was somewhat rural, so there were no sort of choices as we would think of them you know there were there's now more schools by the time there were like maybe three elementary schools a middle school or as we called it a junior high um and then a high school and so that that was it you know that was sort of those, yeah. those were your choices unless maybe you were gonna drive a good distance um and so you know it was it was fine there were things about it that were that were better and things that were worse but it was overall fine I mean, I didn't, I didn't struggle in school, I guess. Good. So you say so basically you enjoyed it, have good feelings. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for, for the most part, you know, I think um, I was a smart kid who was somewhat bored sometimes. And uh, for whatever reason, right around my junior and senior year of high school, they got rid of a lot of the AP classes. And so that did not help. But, um, but you know. Did they get rid of them because of budget cuts or for policy reasons? Or what was behind that? I, I actually have no idea because I wasn't at all plugged into it. I just knew all of a sudden there were fewer honors classes to take. And that had been kind of the track I had been on. But it never like it never was raised as an issue of like, oh, we could send her somewhere out. There was nowhere else to go. So, yeah. so you know, and my my parents didn't have expectations of me leaving for college or doing any of those sorts of things so it was just like this is good this is good enough and did you leave for college were they were they shocked at that i well so i went to the university of washington which does not seem like a big shocking move as it's in seattle but uh, my parents were definitely opposed to that yeah, very very different place from eastern washington yeah i i actually had a couple of teachers tell me that um i should not go to like the big city as they thought of it and that I would I would die and no one would care <laughs> because it was such a large school, and uh, my parents and I had some disagreements about it my senior year. And ultimately, the way I got around that was I applied to exactly one college, which was the University of Washington, and I said, "If you want me to go, this is the school that I've gotten into." Because I applied to nowhere else. So that was my that was my creative way of getting what I wanted. You're lucky to live in a state with a school like UW. It's a great school. It is a good school. Um, okay, that's interesting. I always ask people that because I, I find in, in the sector, and this is a, a, a bit of a gross overgeneralization, there's certainly exceptions, but in general, like 
you find people who either they really love school and they found like a lot of validation there and that's why they work in education because it's, it, mm-hmm. it's 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 an area they've always felt good or they really didn't like it for whatever reason they felt you know excluded or marginalized or they really struggled they weren't good at it and so like they're in this career because they're trying to fix it and they're, and they're like trying to change it so others don't have have that experience and people often i find fall in those in those in those two broad buckets you I'm do get some people who are just like yeah but they're, they're they're more rare i was gonna say i might be in the eh bucket that's good you're rare <laughs> that's really heavier so um, we could look, we could talk about your biography all afternoon, but the uh, reason we've got you here uh, is because you have a new book out, uh, The Death of Public School, which sounds ominous. And so I figured we better have you on because that sounds very serious. I have I have a friend uh, who lives in Mexico, actually, and, and she had a hard time you know, getting the book to Mexico. And then she showed it to her daughter, who's who's in elementary school. And she said, is it a scary book? <laughs> So well, let's said, start there. You tell me. Is it, <laughs> is it a scary? Is it a scary book? I mean, it's kind of on point, right? Halloween is tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think it, it has a provocative title. Um, it's not actually what the original title was, but I, I, you know, kind okay, of. Okay, hey, I got to pause you there. So this is always it. What did you want to call it? Well, okay, so. Um, the original title that that I sort of you know sold the book proposal with um, was the Unholy Alliance or Unholy Alliance, uh, which is a Polly Williams quote. It ends up being a chapter, a couple yeah, of chapter yeah. titles, um, and and I just really liked that Polly Williams quote because I thought it spoke to so many different sort of political weird alliances in school choice. But for selling a book to audiences that aren't familiar with the subject it could be anything, you know? So the conversation we had was, it could be a history of like the Catholic church. It could be some kind of Roman empire thing. It could just, it didn't say education. Because apparently we all do think about the Roman empire. A lot. Yes, that's that's a thing right now. So, um, so yeah, it didn't necessarily make a ton of sense as jumping out about education. And then a lot of people don't also know what school choice is. And so that was in the subtitle. Um, and so, you know, so we kind of had this conversation where we went around in circles about where ultimately, what is this about? You know, and it's sort of this question about whether or not the school choice movement erases or, you know, gets rid of public schools or if it if it just sort of changes what public education is. And so that's that's where we came down. It's a good look. It's, a, it's definitely a catchy title. It's going to make people buy it because it's, it's it's alarming. I do think Unholy Alliance because is a good title because you get into a lot of history that's not so told. I mean, I think the the sort of history on the right and uh, school vouchers is like a tool of segregation and so forth. We hear a lot about that, mm-hmm. particularly lately. You hear a lot less about sort of the new left and you get into Chris Jenks and Jack Coons and Ted Coldery. And um, I just had dinner with Ted uh, about a week and a half ago or so. Oh, did so, you? Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, like these are yeah. people who like came at this from a totally different uh, perspective and that, it, it, that often is, is minimized and sort of how people tell the story. So Unholy yeah. Alliance seems good because I think you did a nice job getting into the more complicated history. Yeah, I mean, that's what was attractive to me about it was sort of this idea of all of these different people from very different backgrounds sort of being interested in the same sort of tool or mechanism, but with very different intentions. And the, the idea they overlapped you know, that some of these people, that you would have Christopher Jenks at the same time that you would have segregationists. You know, I thought that was so interesting and you never hear that. You know, you rarely hear about that that aspect of things. So 
but but yeah, as a title, it just it, it had to go to a chapter title. Yeah, and you get into one of the things I thought was interesting. You get into something else you don't hear about a lot is the Alum Rock demonstration project, and sort of that you know they actually tried to put some of these ideas, uh, some of Jenks's ideas, in, into practice during the Nixon administration. Yeah. Um, uh, and and they and they tried to do it. Um, I mean, as you were writing the book, were you surprised? Were you were you like learning about this stuff, or was this like a story you were familiar with and you felt like should be told? Because I just think like. It's it the, a part of the book I really liked is just it's a history that if, if you watched you know everybody's trying to rip each other's face off on Twitter around this like seemingly very ignorant of this complicated history and so I, I like that you got into it so like I guess my question is what was that what was that like for you? Well, so I knew pieces of it. I knew pieces of the story from being an education reporter. Um, I didn't know a lot of things. I I'd heard of Alan Rock. I knew you know little, little bits about things, but I didn't know all the ins and outs. And I think, you know, I also, I knew pieces from either a for or against choice sort of standpoint, you know, so if you're, if you're for choice, maybe you talk about Milton Friedman and you talk about Jack Coons and, you know, you, you talk about some of these different pieces. And if you're opposed to it, then maybe you talk about segregation. And I, I just was interested in how those things actually fit together. Like, how are those both true at the same time? And, and how do they overlap? And I didn't know some of those pieces. You know, I feel like when you're an education reporter, you sort of know the stuff that affects what you're writing about. So I knew Florida's story pretty well because I worked in Florida for a long time. I grew up in Washington State, so I knew that we really didn't have, I mean, hardly any school choice to speak of. A few, a few charter schools now, and that's been contested in the courts. So I just, you know, I was kind of interested in how do these things fit together and, and sort of bounce off each other? And, and how do you actually pass some of these things politically? You know, because they are so contested and people are so, I mean, just there's no like middle ground. I kind of felt like I was searching for a middle ground and, and you know, you don't see much of one. So how do you even pass these things then? And so then I looked for places of, of sort of connection. Well, and that's sort of from the beginning. You talk in the book about Minnesota, you know, and Ember, and and the, and and um, the you know the the effort to get the charter law passed there, and like you, you talk about how everybody ended up kind of everybody was disappointed in in, it, in the ultimate yeah. compromise for different reasons. Talk talk about that, and is that is that sort of like you know is that sort of a theme that that comes through this, or is one side actually over time winning? Well, I mean, what I conclude is that over time, conservatives win, right? That 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 one of the questions I had uh, at some point in the research, you know, this was five years, but at, at some point, one of the questions I had was, you know, who wins between sort of these different visions for choice? Because you have sort of the Milton Friedman universal, it's good for everybody uh, argument. And then you have this very sort of narrow um, sort of progressive argument of, of this is good for low-income kids. And I wondered, you know, whose who's vision for choice sort of wins? So that was a question I had. And, you know, in this current moment, it feels very much like Milton Friedman's vision for choice has won over this sort of more progressive model that different people have championed. Um, Minnesota, I was kind of interested in because, you know, one of the things you do here as an education reporter is that Al Shanker supported charter schools, you know, and I thought, well, that's interesting. Why, why is this very well-known, you know, teachers union president, a supporter of, of charters? Um, and the Minnesota story was interesting too, 
because you know those were sort of democratic voices saying that we need some choice but not school vouchers and i liked the idea of how do charters and and school vouchers sort of hit up against each other you know how do those things play off each other politically and because charter schools is kind of a weird idea i mean it's, it's normal to us now but it's kind of a strange idea when you when you think about it we'll have a different kind of public school like all this the you know major features of public school but broken off from the district like that's a really interesting kind of odd idea and um and i liked sort of this i like this idea of if we could go back to when these things were new and erase what we know about them now you know what what was appealing at the time why did something sort of take off you know and and ember wrote in her book um which is a really useful history of of charter school legislation in minnesota she wrote about how she was actually you know opposed to school vouchers and and so she was looking for something that would create sort of choice and innovation but wasn't taking away sort of from the public system and and so i thought that was really interesting let's stay on charters for a sec you said like you, if yeah. you could go back you would change like what what would you change well no not change something i'm saying when you're when you're trying to write a history book you know when i'm researching these things you have to sort of think about what you don't know you know like try to pretend you don't know how this ends up and think about it in the moment and i just thought it was interesting that in that in that moment if you're a democrat looking for something that is sort of an answer to school vouchers you know, I, I think just politically, you can't just say, well, we're just for traditional public schools, because in that moment in time, it was all about ed reform. And it was, you know, this fallout still from a nation at risk and all, all that kind of thing. And so it's, it's trying to back up and think about what it looked like at, at that time, which is kind of hard to do, actually, to go back and say, well, what did this look like before we had all of these things before, you know, the ending sort of. So. Yeah. I want to go deeper on the book, but like that, that begs like an obvious political question. Like the, the the Democrats' basic position right now is they are against most kinds of school choice, pretty much everything except fairly limited public school choice for the most part. There's obviously exceptions. There's Democrats who support school vouchers, and there's Democrats who support yeah. charter schools and so forth. But like in general, the party is, is fairly hostile to yeah, choice. Certainly more, uh, I'm sorry. I said, yeah, there's been a backlash. Yeah, it's certainly more hostile, I think, than it was during either the Clinton administration or the Obama administration. Yeah. Um, so against that backdrop, uh, you know, the argument is basically nothing. And you've got Republicans <laughs> championing a bunch of choice. So it's sort of lots of choice against essentially nothing. On the, I'm not saying the Democrats' agenda on everything on education is nothing, but on the choice issue, it, it, it's fairly it's fairly narrow. Um, against this this Republican real this real pressure and demand for choice at a time when it's pretty broadly supported as well. So, like, what does that mean for the Democrats, and what does that mean for school choice? Well, I mean, I'm not a, a advocate or a political operative at all, but no, but you're an, but you're an analyst. I mean, at reporting but, this out, this history. Yeah, I mean, as a as a journalist and as someone who spent all this time sort of. Uh, trying to understand the politics of this and see how people actually got these programs passed. I mean, to me, it, it seems like Republicans have often been better at this. You know, they've been really good on messaging. Like they, they, they're actually fairly masterful on messaging around school choice. And, and I think also that the Republican supporters of choice have been good at 
presenting something and packaging something. You know, they're, 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 they have something to sell that's different than what exists. And I think if you're in politics trying to sell sort of the status quo is not, is not really a selling message. Like we like what we have, you know, <laughs> so that doesn't do a lot for you. And um, well, especially until, when a lot of people clearly don't like what they well, have. Well, exactly. It's extra right. Tough. right, exactly. It's like, uh, no, it has problems and it's inequitable, but ultimately we think we should stick with it. Like that's not a really, just politically speaking, that's not the strongest message, I think. And uh, And I feel like sometimes, I mean, especially in this moment, it just feels like Democrats don't necessarily know how to to answer some of these things, the parental freedom stuff and and this huge explosion of school choice. It doesn't it still feels like they don't have a very good answer to it. And so, I mean, that's kind of a problem for them. But but it's interesting to watch because it does feel like even after all this time, there's still not a very good answer to it. So. One of the things saying on this, one of the parts of the book that I, I I was was somewhat skeptical of, you talk about sort of lots of grass, you talk about grassroots opposition later in the book to some of this mm -hmm. stuff, but a lot of those groups are not grassroots groups. These are this is like this is like organized political warfare, and it's just between you know two different camps, right? And a lot of it is. occasionally there's like organic stuff springs up, but most of the people who are generally associated as sort of prominent advocates, they have. You know they have money behind them from from the teachers unions or from uh from from left-leaning foundations and conversely on the right certainly a lot of the advocates there have money behind them from foundations on the right so i'm not i'm, I'm certainly not trying to claim that like one, one side or the other is, is pure or impure but it's just this is like a special interest fight and in some ways we get all wrapped around the axelon because it's in education but it's really in some ways no different than fights are we going to like deregulate you know, in the, in the old, you know, in the past, like, are we deregulate the airlines? Are we going to deregulate telecom? Who's going to get to make all these regulatory decisions? It's it's, it's sort of this, it's sort of the same thing, and and so where I'm where I'm going with that is, you know, you talked about some of these groups, but like if you look at like ample public polling, like a majority of Hispanic Americans, Black Americans, they want school choice, right? Like the the the, the main group standing astride saying no. Is sort of this this alliance, which I guess you could call an unholy alliance of sort of white progressives and the producer interests in education, primarily the teachers unions, but also like the school districts and so forth. Like, how does that fit with 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 sort of the story you tell in terms of the politics as, as they evolve and where and where they are now? Well, I don't think there's any sort of pure side. I mean, the the teachers unions have been opposed to pretty much all forms of school choice overall you know, since, since the start, I mean, they were even opposed to, uh, you know, dual enrollment where junior and seniors go to, go to right, get right. some classes at college. You know, I mean, I think they've generally been opposed to anything that was outside of, of school districts, you know, so that's, that's a lot of things. Except but we have to, we have to pause for the give credit to Shanker, right? Cause he's one of those, like, I'm not on everything. And he, I think he arguably, he failed to reform the union the way he wanted to, but like, he's one of those people you can read stuff he wrote and you read it to people and they just immediately assume it's like some conservative Republican saying it <laughs> and you can like, you know, take off. You're like, that was Al Shanker. He, well, he was, I think he, he was trying to move in a different direction on some of this stuff as long as it didn't like really screw over his members. Yeah. I mean, Shanker is an interesting figure in all of it because I think there was a willingness on his part to entertain different ideas. I think in part because he didn't want, what he viewed as bad policies imposed on them. 
And so I think he had an idea that, you know, if you sort of play ball on some things and show a willingness to consider some ideas, then, you know, that just comes across better than just straight opposition to all things, you know? And I think he also was fairly honest about there being some challenges in education, but the, but with the charter school thing, you know, he, he was in favor of that for a few years and then very quickly lumped it in with school vouchers and called it a gimmick, you know? So I think sometimes his support for that gets overstated a bit, but on the, on the. Right. Well, you're right. I mean, the unions tell us sort of like, it sounds like a biblical story. There was like this Eden like state with charters. And then this, like now we're in this like fallen state, which is convenient for their political narrative, but is not really what happened. Um, you know, and, 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 and the other side tells the story of like, Shanker was for this, Shanker was for this, you should be for this. And that does, that's not the whole story either. No, no. And he, you know, he just was, I think a complicated figure. So trying to boil it down into a talking point is probably where people go wrong. But, but, you know, on the grassroots thing, I think there are definitely organizations out there that are supporting traditional public schools and are opposed to school choice that are not necessarily just uh, union funded. I think where it gets a little complicated is I think the idea of choice, just the basic idea is extremely appealing and and it has pulled better over time. You know, I mean, school vouchers, it used to be that if you put sort of vouchers into a polling question, that it pulled worse, right? If you put some other way of phrasing it, into the question that it would pull better because vouchers just had a negative connotation to a lot of people, you know? Um, But I think also there's an aspect of familiarity to it. You know, we've now had different school choice options for a long time. And, uh, and so there's a certain sense of, I know what that is, you know, and, and, and also, again, I think the messaging around it is very good because what, what really sounds negative about choice, you know, that, that sounds like a nice idea. Yeah, well, it is. I mean, I, I've said before, like, essentially being against choice in America is like being against gravity. And, and you only you only have to, like, walk through like a grocery store or sort of any 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 part of our sort of, of our various commercial sectors to see how much Americans like choice to the point even when those choices might not actually be optimal choices. People just it, it's it's a very um, deeply ingrained function of 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 how of how we live. And so not having an answer for that politically seems like a real it, it, that seems like a box canyon strategy. There's just no there's you have to have some kind of answer, which obviously that's why Bill Clinton championed charter schools. He thought that would be um, that that would be a way out uh, and, and sort of a third way kind of compromise on that. Um, yeah, but he recognized I, you had you couldn't you can't just say no on this stuff. Like, you yeah, know, you have to have something. Yeah. And I think that we saw that then with charter schools for a long time, charter schools and, you know, merit pay for teachers, different sort of reform ideas that you could kind of package together. But but the Democrat answer to, you know, to school vouchers for a long time was charter schools. That really has only changed, I think, with, you know, the Trump years and then the sort of divisiveness of, of Betsy DeVos. Yeah, you talk about the boss. So, so talk about that, because that's certainly you were mentioning like earlier, the word voucher had weird polling connotations. Something we were seeing during the Trump years was if you just attached an idea to Betsy DeVos's name, it would poll lower. If, so <laughs> if you described it to people and then you described it like in an A-B kind of sample, and then you said like this is something that Betsy DeVos wants to do, it would it would, it would poll lower, which is unusual for a secretary of education to sort of cast that kind of a shadow. So you get yeah. into you get into her a lot in the book. So talk about that. 
Well, I, it's funny. I get into her a little bit in the book. If I had a, I had someone tell me the other day that they wanted a chapter on Betsy DeVos and they got like two pages. <laughs> I was like, yeah, oh. I I was like, I'm sorry, but uh, but I didn't I didn't actually think that you know for as as much media attention as she commanded and and for as polarizing a figure as she sort of was, she she didn't most of her accomplishments were not actually in the realm of of K to twelve or or school choice. You know, a lot of the things that that the Trump administration talked about, you know, or that that they talked about coming into office didn't actually come to pass. You know, and uh, and there's not necessarily strong conservative support for, say, like a federal voucher program, you know, because it gets into other other areas of, of disagreement. And so I what I liked was was this thing where she visited Milwaukee and she sort of called back to the history and she called right. back to, to Polly Williams. She quoted Polly Williams. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I liked that moment because one, she kind of had she kind of gave this speech where she talked about what the future of public education was with, through the lens of school choice. And I thought if you, I mean, speaking to the polarization of the issue, you either are going to read that and think, oh my gosh, this is awful. Or you're going to read that and think, actually, that sounds pretty good. And and so I liked that. And the fact that she called back to this history with, with you know, Polly Williams in Milwaukee. But ultimately, I didn't think that she necessarily needed a whole chapter you know, I didn't feel like she had, she had, she was a very effective sort of voice for choice in, in her career. But as education secretary, I mean, people really, really reacted strongly to her in such a way that I think it caused a lot of the backlash with yeah, charter yeah. school. Like anything that you could, I mean, as you said, anything that you could sort of attach her to for a certain group of people, that was okay, then we don't want that. And, and yeah, so, no, it's interesting because she did, and, and and to her credit, like I mean, she had a she had a she did a lot of work on school choice. And to her credit, she took some tough stands at times that went against some of these ideas around like universal vouchers and so forth. Like earlier earlier in her career, and she wanted to make sure these things were targeted and were going to help uh, underprivileged kids. And and that's all been sort of you know all of that has just been sort of erased. Yeah, I mean, I think that for it's interesting because how many education secretaries in the past do you think very many people could even name, you know? And it's just, it's interesting that she commanded that sort of, sort of attention, you know, just that it would have any kind of effect really is sort of in itself interesting. But that, that I think was also just sort of the Trump effect. I mean, not even just DeVos. I think that was a lot, the Trump effect. So so something you say early in the book that, that kind of relates to this is you, you talk about it's a it's a quote from uh, it's a quote from Jeb Bush the for, the former Florida governor and and, and very very uh, high profile education advocate and Jeb says something like um, uh, I, I forget the exact quote but you basically are like this is like was the this was the vision for vouchers and school choice all along start small and expand yeah he was asked in a in an interview at the Tampa Bay Times basically. It was, I don't remember the exact question, but it was something along the lines of, of sort of how did this, you know, all come to be. And he basically said that you start small and expand, which is actually how pretty much all school choice programs have, have been passed, you know, and it's sort of interesting because the critics of them said from the start that you're going to start with low income kids, or you're going to start with this, you know, cap on enrollment, and then you're going to go you know, it's just going to be the start of this. It's going to go somewhere else. And uh, and so I thought, 
and when I listened to that interview, I just I thought, well, that that actually is kind of the whole sort of political strategy that's been extremely effective. Because you know, my, my question for you on that 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 with the yeah. reason one reason that jumped out at me is like that's that's true, but that's also that's how like all policy. I mean, like Social Security started with pensions for widows and orphans, right, and then expanded into a broader social insurance program. We started, you know, Medicare and Medicaid started in more targeted ways and subsequently expanded. Like almost any, on almost any policy domain, that's how you, that's how you start. You start, you know, with various kinds of like, you know, tax credits for different, like you start small and you try to, and then advocates get a toehold and you try to get it bigger. So I was surprised that like you were like that this was somehow like that strikes me as that's just like a, basically like a, that's, that's like what you do if you're an advocate for a particular policy, whether you're left, right or center. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's because why would that, you know, that makes sense in a lot of ways. Like, you're not going to oppose something that's small and experimental and this is a pilot and we're going to try this out. And then, but, but I don't know that it's necessarily been as true in education. You know, there are things that people have said, we're going to try this. And then it kind of has gone away. You know, I mean, you just think about all of the big ed reform things that, that were just like dominant in the coverage earlier when, you know, and earlier in my career, but merit pay and, and, you know, the VAM stuff like that for a little while as a reporter, I was just consumed with, with this stuff in, uh, in Florida. And it's not really what we're talking about anymore. You know, it's no, sort well, of, there, it's sort of interesting. Part, and in some ways that's like, that kind of makes the point because those things, they didn't start and iterate. They jumped really we went from like, basically evaluating no teachers to deciding we're going to evaluate all of them, including in, in, in the majority of subjects and grades that aren't even assessed. And so yeah. like, it fell under its own pressure. And then, you know, even before you got to all the, all the, it was technically incredibly difficult before you even got to all the political stuff. Um, so I feel like, but I feel like things that generally succeed and become embedded as features of American life. And I think you can, you can argue school choice is probably a feature of American life now. It's so broad. Like they start, they, they tend to start small and then they just sort of, they just sort of grow and, and expand. Yeah. I mean, I think that that is a, a good way to start something, but, but I don't know if that's necessarily like a really obvious thing with choice. Cause one of the things I think is interesting about it is that, you know, American schools tend to be, our system is pretty decentralized, you know? And so it's interesting at all that you would have a movement where you might start something in Milwaukee and then have similar forces supporting it in Cleveland and supporting it in Florida. You know, I mean, I think that's one of the ways that the opposition to it has been sort of outmaneuvered in a certain sense, because it, it comes across as a local thing and it's treated as sort of a local thing, you know? And so to have kind of these driving forces behind it, just the fact that you had the same, lawyers on so many of the cases I thought was really interesting, you know, because so often things in education are, well, this is the thing we're doing in Florida, you know, to see something spread is kind of, I mean, like the, you know, the Florida model that, that Jeb Bush was, was pioneering for quite a while to watch that go from one state to multiple states. That actually is kind of interesting in education, I think, and different maybe than some other areas. So, one thing that's happened that sort of has, has fueled some of that expansion is you sort of, and you, you get into the book, there's sort of two tracks here. You have the political tracks, so the different kinds of school choice laws being passed. And then you have this constitutional track where 
you essentially have like a, a concerted legal strategy just to basically completely upend uh, First Amendment jurisprudence first around, uh, you know, ultimately around both the, the free exercise and establishment clauses. And, and we've sort of seen that's still been playing out even the last in the last few years at the court. And it's sort of created this incredible space and opportunity. And, and ultimately now the way the laws are or the way the Supreme Court you know, precedents are almost like a propulsion for if you're going to have school choice, you're going to have to have fairly broad based school choice. Um, and you're seeing that now there's like religious schools trying to come into the charter sector and that's very contentious. Yeah. So like talk about talk about that and that part of the book, because that's I, I that legal history isn't told that much. And it, it's I mean, by the time you had the sort of Louisiana case on like technology was you could sort of see that they were going to succeed on ultimately on 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 vouchers, you could sort of see the argument where it had gone over those previous 30 years. And, and and so talk about that and sort of how that relates to this sort of really steady expansion of choice. Yeah, so this is an area that I didn't know very much about um, when I started doing the, the research. But one of the first books that I read, um, you know, was Voucher Wars, which was written by one of the lawyers that I end up writing a great deal about in the book. And that was told from a you know pro school choice sort of explaining the litigation from from that perspective, and I thought you know that that was interesting because I, it hadn't occurred to me necessarily how important it was to win in the courts. You know, I was thinking legislatively, how do you pass this and and that kind of thing, um, but I I thought oh well yeah of course that seems obvious <laughs> you know that that these programs are instantly going to be challenged and that where you really have to win is in the court system um but i also i didn't know that much about church state law you know i i thought that was a somewhat clear-cut thing and so i thought it was interesting actually how murky it was and and so i ended up getting really interested in that and then you know probably to the point where i was like well this is not anything that people are going to read <laughs> because to understand it, it gets it such a, you know, it's like so in the weeds to understand and parse out these different cases and why one is building on the other and why they're important. Um, and so, you know, I was kind of presented with this challenge of feeling like this is extremely important and should be part of the history. And also, how do you get people to sort of read through this? Because I think if you do understand that, that, you know, all of these precedents, then when something like Carson versus Macon happens, then you understand and, and say what Carson Macon is the, the 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 main case. What it was about? Yeah, I mean, it was it's the it's probably it's the most recent case where the the courts basically have said you know that not only are our school vouchers okay you know which is what Zellman was in two thousand two, but that you know if you're going to provide sort of public benefits to secular private schools that you have to also provide it to religious private schools. Otherwise, it's it's this issue of religious discrimination. That's, that's and it was based on these in, in more rural places where you sometimes have these tuition assistance programs to give people a broader range of, of, of choices because yeah. there's just a low density of, of public schools and schools overall. Yeah, and, yeah. Yes. Sort, sort of like where I grew up, really. Right. And they, it was challenged because that it was not that you they didn't include um, uh, sectarian schools and that you, you, you yeah. had to. Yeah, and you have families who are saying, "Why can't I enroll my kid in a in a religious school when I can enroll them in this other private school?" Right. You know, which is an interesting question. Um, but there's there's thirty some years, you know, of of cases that sort of lead up to that point, and and so 
you know, I was sort of trying to unravel that and understand the different ways that they sort of argued those cases. Because for a long time, it was just establishment clause arguments. And now it's sort of more on this issue of religious discrimination and free exercise and, and the tension between those two things. But um, one of the things I thought was really interesting was going way back, you know, where I kind of where I started the book in the 50s. I thought it was really interesting that at that point in time, and really up, up until, you know, 70s, 80s, there was this the sense that the court was not at all going to allow any kind of really public support for private education. There was a big movement around Catholic schools, you know, because Catholic school enrollment was declining, schools were closing, and there was some interest from lawmakers in different places to, to try to help those institutions. And really the courts were like, yeah, no, I think that Catholic schools, you know, provide this public service and they're, they're good schools, but ultimately it's advancing religion. We can't do it. And, you know, and so to see that evolve over time to now where it's like, no, you have to give support to those institutions or you're discriminated against them. That's like, that's quite a journey, actually. And so I was really I was really it, interested it in that. It really is. Yeah. I mean, it's really kind of stunning. It literally turned on its on its head. And yeah. I don't know that the rhetoric has caught up being something I noticed. And maybe this is just more like social media debate. But you hear a lot of people still talk about like the separation of church and state and education and this high wall. And like you used to hear that even when like you had title one services being provided in parochial schools and, and yeah. all of that, you, you still heard that. And it was like, well, the wall's already been kind of penetrated to some, to some extent. And, but you still hear it now. And it's like a fairly settled issue. It seems. Yeah. Well, and the thing I thought was interesting when Carson versus Macon happened, you know, was that some of the, so I'm mean, not even just the Twitter debates, but some of the news coverage even was like, oh, this is this crazy yeah. thing that has occurred under under sort of the Roberts court. And it was like, not not really, though, guys, <laughs> Like right. that's, that's actually, you know, that that's actually something that's been kind of a slow journey over several decades, really. You know, I mean, Rehnquist's court started moving in that direction and sort of, you know, carving a path. Right. but. But that's been, you know, that's been years and years in the making. So as a journalist, does that make it? I mean, because I feel like what you're, what you're putting your finger on, there's an awful lot of presentism in the debate. You had a bunch of stuff happening during the Trump years that people were like, oh, my God, this is unprecedented. This, you know, and, but it was stuff that was actually like quite precedented. It was, you know, <laughs> policies that link back to previous policies. I'm, I mean, I'm not I'm certainly not defending Trump did some stuff that I think is, is argue, he certainly argues unprecedented. Um, but just on education, people would get spun up about stuff and, and you were like, this actually is, none of this is really new. These are these are just like longstanding debates, but they were kind of caught up in the sense of presentism, as you said, like about like that this is something the Roberts court cooked up out of whole cloth rather than like a, you know, fairly long running argument uh, with, with, with a lot of cases and so forth behind it. Is that hard as a reporter if, you, if you're trying to operate in a climate where like, everything's seeming everything's new new in, in air quotes yeah i mean i think it's frustrating in some ways because i think i mean it gets into some of the stuff that's going on i think in newspapers and journalism and sort of the decline of of just the number of journalists out there you know so a lot of times what you have are fairly young reporters covering things and and so sometimes i think people are not as familiar with some of the the history. But I also think, you know, you could probably, unless you are a courthouse reporter with a lot of background, you could probably be forgiven for not 
knowing all of the ins and outs of like church state history. Um, but, but yeah, sometimes I see things and it's like, no, it's not actually this bold new thing. It's kind of the same old thing. <laughs> it's just a different yeah, person. I, I guess you can, I'll give people a pass. I'll certainly forgive people if you don't know all the history. You don't expect everybody to be, you know, steeped in constitutional law. And, I, you know, if you're a yeah. young reporter, like you need to, you know, understand like there was once a lemon test and this stuff. But like, I do think like, if you're writing about a Supreme Court case, you should understand if it's like genuinely new or if it's a continuation and sort of stands yeah. on the back of some earlier um yeah well, uh, you know and also just what it actually does because i think some of the school choice cases have been more limited in in sort of scope than the coverage would maybe suggest and but you know sort of the breathless coverage sometimes i think is is almost overstating what something has really done so there's yeah. there's sort of two issues there like understand the history of it and that it's not the first you know this didn't just come out of left field and then, and then also sort of this really over the top breathless, oh my gosh, what have they done? It's like, not quite that. Well, it can but... confuse issues, right? Like, so like the Janice case, people were so this breathless coverage that like, this was the end for the teachers unions. And like, it is certainly affecting their membership and you're seeing sort of a slow membership decline, but the reporting and a lot of the commentary on it was like, this is it, this is like, and, and so the fact that like, you know, the case came down in the summer and the teachers unions were still around in December, like was like surprising people when like you should have like it was not how it, its impact was not going to work like that. It was going to be a process over time of how yeah. it sort of affected them. But it was this sense of like, oh, and then then people kind of moved on like, oh, that was a big nothing. When in fact, it's actually shaping a lot of the politics uh, around yeah. the sector in some pretty profound ways. Well, it's interesting because so with with Carson versus Macon, I mean, I did think some of the coverage was a little over the top and a little breathless. But at the same time, now we're looking at this possibility of religious charter schools and and, you know, different ways that states are interpreting what that case means. And, and so, you know, that that is actually a fairly large effect. But it's, you know, yeah. so it's, it's sort of, it's like, okay, well, how do we square this? On the one hand, I thought some of this was a little over the top. And on the other hand, we're talking about religious charter schools. Well, it's, I think you square it by saying that doesn't matter, right? Like, yeah. I mean, by definition, a Supreme Court case matters. I think yeah. it's just like, it's like the context and sort of how it matters and, and, and how it came into being. Yeah. And I think the idea that this just came out of nowhere from the Roberts Court, that's just not true. And I think that just confused people, but it fit with this narrative which was a weird narrative that, I mean, you say a lot of things about Donald Trump, but he's not a theocrat. Like, I don't think the guy, like, you know, um, uh, you know, I doubt he's ever cracked the Bible, let alone like thought about it. So like the idea that like he was trying to bring back a theocracy through this just didn't, I don't know, it, it, it just seemed like just sort of like rhetoric, just like just rhetoric of the moment rather than like a deeply, uh, you know, any, any, any kind of deep political conviction. Yeah, well, and I, I don't think it has anything to do with Trump, really. But I did think it was interesting to see the court sort of shift on this free exercise, you know, that because that is that is something that, you know, in the book, I write about Virgil Bloom, who was a priest yeah, advocating, yeah. you know, he was advocating for vouchers in the, you know, very first in the 50s. And he was talking about free exercise and that this was an issue of religious discrimination decades before the court really was giving that any kind of serious 
consideration. And I know even in the, you know, in the 90s and, and when some of the court cases were playing out in Milwaukee and Cleveland, some of the, the school choice supporters who were involved in those cases didn't think they would win on free exercise. So it is interesting to see that it's gone that direction. I just think, you know, it's gone that direction slowly. I want to come back to Bloom in a second and that whole piece and Friedman and all that, because I think that yeah. the beginning of the book and the end of the book, like kind of fit around that. But before that, there's a quick question, like one, you, you didn't get into housing much. And as I was reading parts of the book, it was like, well, this is actually, I guess, in some ways, a story of, of housing and mm -hmm. housing segregation and historic, you know, housing redlining policies, the way, you know, school districts look the way they look and so forth for a reason, the lack of choice. Like talk about like how do you see like these issues of housing and 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 segregated housing, redlining, both formal redlining and now sort of often you know informal education redlining, um, and formal in terms of like school district boundaries. How does that fit into this whole story of choice? Yeah, so I wrote about this a little bit in the introduction because I was I was saying that some of the arguments for school choice are are compelling and have power because of the sort of built-in inequities in the public school system. Because if you can essentially buy a better resource school by virtue of where you live, you know, then, then there's something wrong with how the public school system is organized and put together, you know, and some of that makes sense because if you have kids living in a certain area, you need to have a school for them, you know, just structurally that makes sense. But I think that, you know, when you have places where, you can get in trouble and get arrested in some cases for sending your kid to a public school that they're not zoned for based on where they live. That is a, that's, that's wild. You know, I mean, that's, that's just wrong in a lot of ways. And I think it gives power to some of that, that argument for choice. You know, the other thing that's interesting about school choice to me is that if no one takes you up on any of these choices, then there is no power to it at all. You know, if no one actually finds them worth choosing, you know, if the charter school doesn't get anyone to come, then then it has no power at all, you know? And I think that's sort of interesting in itself. But this, this idea of housing, you know, I think that's sort of a subtext because, you know, I'm, I say in the introduction that, that this is one of the things that sort of gives power to the idea. But then you also see this in the segregation years you know, when people talk about segregationists use school vouchers, you know, to try to get around Brown versus Board, to try to get around desegregating their public schools, they used a lot of things. It's not just school vouchers. They used attendance boundaries. You know, they used admissions criteria. They used actually a lot of things that are still very much present in our public school system. You know, and I tried to sort of point those things out because I think it makes the argument around that more complicated. I thought you did a good job with that because the debate does seem to run one way. Vouchers were a segregationist tool, which is true. Yeah. Uh, but so were lots of these other things that nobody says boo about that are. Yeah, lots um, of things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. they, they, I they tried yeah. everything. You know, they right. weren't just like doing the one thing. They tried everything, you know. Absolutely. And so, so I thought that that was interesting, too, because it complicates things a little bit. You know, if you can use attendance boundaries to segregate your schools and if you can use admissions criteria, well, in a lot of ways, we're still doing that. And other communities did that too, you know? And I thought that was part of the reason that Milwaukee ends up with vouchers. It's part of the reason that Cleveland does because those school systems had segregation and under-resourced schools and had cases involved, you know? Like, so it's not just an issue in the South. And I, 
felt like that also is still very much present in our current public school system. We just talk about it a little differently, you know, and, right. and that's kind of an inescapable fact. And I think, again, on messaging, school choice supporters are really good at playing those things up and pointing those things out. And the opposition is not, I think, as good at answering those charges. Well, I think they're not as good at answering them because they don't. There's not a coherent argument there. You can't. You sort of can't be for equity and against sort of structural racism or the present day contemporary effects of historic racism, and not have something pretty profound to say about the public schools and everything you just said. Like, if you have means, you can buy your way out of it and so forth. So I yeah. think that intellectually they're sort of stuck in that box canyon and 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 sort of haven't figured out a way. And that's why I think. Uh, school choice supporters, uh, uh, you know, have the upper hand. So on that, two, two quick final questions. Well, one, one probably won't be quick because it gets to the core of the book. But I, at the beginning, you talk about Virgil Bloom, you talk about Milton Friedman um, uh, and others. And, and I think what's really interesting about those, those people in particular, they were aware that some of the things they were advocating would have adverse effects, but they were like, it, it's, it's worth it. Like it's, yeah. that's, the, that's the price. Like, you know, they, and, and they, 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 were, they were sort of comfortable with those trade-offs at a pretty profound level. Yeah, I mean, I think Milton Friedman's interesting because he was just very honest about it. You know, I mean, he just, he thought that there should be fewer public schools, you know, and, and, he, and he, yeah, I mean, he's a libertarian economist. So he thought that business was more efficient than government, you know, and that, that if you had a marketplace where parents could essentially, you know, buy education for their kids, that that some schools would open that would be bad, but other schools would open that would be good, and that, you know, over time this would would drive some sort of improvement. That there would be, you know, he called it this flowering of of schools that would open, you know, and I, I think that's kind of interesting because he was just very clear that he thought having fewer public schools would actually be better. Um, and he also, you know, he exchanged letters with Virgil Bloom um, as two people who supported school vouchers around the same time, but with different, you know, different sort of intentions for him. And he was honest with, with Bloom, too, in saying, you know, this might actually not be good for Catholic schools because you'll have different competitors. And I thought that was sort of interesting that he wasn't necessarily like, hey, let's get together as voucher supporters. He was like, I've got to tell you, this might not be good for your interests. <laughs> you know, I just thought that was sort of, sort of, interesting that, that yeah no he was i interviewed him once about this he was madding maddingly sometimes open i said maddingly um consistent and like a, in a yeah. in a like whether you agree with him or not on many things i didn't but like just like just admirably consistent most people try to like fuzzy up the the dark undersides of, of some of the policies they support right and that's yeah. again that's 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 not a right left statement that, that's everyone that's politics yeah and yeah exactly but he just like like very forthright and kind of leaned into them. Yeah. Yeah. I thought he was a fascinating guy because he, he was, he just was committed to what he believed and he wasn't necessarily trying to convince you in a, in a sort of slick political way. He just, he thought this is, this is better. And my argument makes more sense than yours. And he just, you know, he, he enjoyed debating, but ultimately he didn't change his mind. He didn't, you know, I mean, he didn't like, uh, some of the first school voucher programs because they were only for low-income children. And he right. thought if it's good for one kid, it's good for all kids. You know, this isn't 
I just thought it was he was such an interesting guy that 50 years later, he yeah. still basically believed the same thing. But there are people like Jack Coons feels he's like he thinks Friedman set school choice back decades because it got tied up in the free to choose frame and the TV show and became. And, and so like Jack feels like if, if you had had the more progressive orientation on it, that it would have got a lot further um, and you wouldn't have some of the left right politics that you have right now. I don't know. I don't. I mean, not to not to disagree with Jack Coons, who's a lovely person who talked to he me after. He is a lovely. After, yes, he's a lovely guy who took my call after he had actually been uh, seriously injured, and I was like, "Why are you calling me back? <laughs> like, go and rest." He's deeply committed. He's a very caring he cares, person. Yeah, he cares that much, and um, and he he actually also seems to enjoy debate though, because he was telling me with with great delight about arguing with Milton Friedman. Okay, I mean, they were in Chicago together, and there's there wasn't yeah. a lot of love lost there for a while. Yeah, I thought I thought that was kind of kind of fun. You know, some of the points of where people would would agree about sort of the idea that we need this thing, but not how you would implement it. I thought, I mean, I'm a nerd, but I thought that was super fun. Um, yeah, to yeah. See some of those things, but but I don't know if I don't know if I agree with him anyhow because it seems like the places where people tried this sort of progressive idea, you know, with, not just with, you know, Coons and Sugarman, but with, with Christopher Jenks, sometimes it fell down in the, it's complicated part, you know, like the, how are we actually going to implement this? And, and all of these, like, oh, we could have a sliding scale and we can do this and that. I think sometimes that's where the, the messaging didn't necessarily work out. Whereas the Friedman concept was pretty easy to understand. You might disagree with it, but it was pretty easy to understand. So I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. I think I, I think I agree a little more with with Jack. I think the 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 left right argument seems to be like that's like the only thing that opponents of school choice really have is they make this partisan and this is what Republicans are for. It's a very sort of reactionary politics. There's not a mm. positive alternative vision around choice. Um, and I think if you if you could change those politics, it would look different. But let me ask you. So last question. I mean, I have to ask like. Because of the, the title, you said it wasn't it wasn't your title, but uh, oh no no, I mean I didn't let them like put a title on the book that I. But is this the death? Of, it, Kara, is this the death of public schools? Well, so you know, I think it raises that question, and I think some of it is is in this area of of sort of how Republicans and Democrats define public education. You know, because I think right now what Florida is doing. You know, I visited a micro school a week ago. And uh, uh, what Florida is doing is, you could say it's public education. They're putting a lot of public dollars into paying for all of these different things, but it's not public school, right? That micro school I went to, 80% of the kids had state dollars to go there. You could say that's a public education that they're getting, you know, the state is paying right, for that, right. but that's not a public school. And so I meant it kind of to be more profound than just enrollment numbers and you know uh, that the public school system is in like a death spiral. But I, I think the fact that we are now in this place where you can talk about Florida having such a different model of what could be called public education than like where I grew up in Washington, that to me is a profound change from you know when Milton Friedman first started talking about it in 1955. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great place to leave it because I do think like it, the, the, it 
it is definitely public education is going to change and is changing and has profoundly changed and how it's provided and so forth like whether that's good and, how, and actually ends up helping address some of these longstanding problems of equity whether that makes them worse or makes no difference i think the jury uh is is, is still out but like i think that's a like it, it is it seems indisputable that uh things are changing how we think of public education and the relationship of of families to public schools and so forth is 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 changing is going to continue to change yeah that's that's where i you know that's where i wound up that was my conclusion well the book is the death of public school by kara fitzpatrick of chalkbeat it's a fantastic uh read a lot of history that i suspect uh will, will be really uh interesting and engaging for a lot of readers uh, a lot of history about my state of virginia that that's that that's not uh well known even now and so uh, terrific contribution to the literature, The Death of Public Schools. Thank you, Kara, for taking some time with uh, with wonky folk. Thanks for having me. And you got me out of the doghouse. I did one last time with with, with Morgan Polikoff. We didn't talk about choice at all. And so uh, I think having a full-on, you know, uh, full-on episode on choice will get me back in Jed's good graces. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Happy Thank Halloween. Thank you. Thanks. You too.